Hey listeners, before the theme music, before the intro, and before jumping right back in as if we didn't just spend months apart, I thought I'd take a moment and catch you up on things. As most of you know, after over 90 episodes of nearly uninterrupted weekly content, Dead for Filth went on hiatus back in August. A few factors went into this decision, but it mostly centered around the fact that in my other life as a filmmaker, I had some opportunities arise that required my full attention, so I took a pause knowing that I could return someday with more tales of glam and gore to share with you. I'm happy to report that the break has been very productive, and I've got some film and TV projects coming that I'll be very excited to share with you soon. Just not quite yet. No spoilers. As for Dead for Filth, while we are not technically back from hiatus yet, the world situation has undeniably brought changes to us all. As we collectively work together to practice social distancing and self-isolation during the midst of the spreading coronavirus pandemic, I have been reflecting about what has always meant the most to me in times of uncertainty, and that's sharing stories, hearing from our fellow community members and remembering that even in perceived isolation, we never truly stand alone. When I started Dead for Filth, and its mission all throughout, it was always about preserving the stories of those who came to share them, to dig into the intersection of queer identity and horror, but also the lives of the artists that make it happen, and share to the world at large their journey so that we can all see that by coming together over this frightful thing we love, we're part of a bigger whole. With that in mind, I wanted to bring Dead for Filth back for a bit, a renegade version, if you will, to share some new stories and help us all connect a little more. Obviously, with this iteration, things will be a little different. As you know, the show is traditionally recorded in a studio with the interviews happening face-to-face. But in a world of quarantine, we can't do that, so we're going remote, and it's a new chapter for us. Just bear with us in any glitches as we adapt to this remote tech that so many of our podcast colleagues have already mastered. That being said, it's good to be back in this way. It feels a little pirate radio, and this show, if anything, has always been about going rogue from what's expected. Anyway, we're back for a bit, and we've got an array of artists ready to tell their stories, and I, for one, can't wait. So let's get going. Cue the music. Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Vratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show today a fabulous femme fatale and macabre maven who not only can lay claim to the title Queen of the Night, but also Queen of the Rodeo. She tantalized audiences as a competitor on the most recent season of the hit series The Boulay Brothers Dragula, and through live shows like her own Die Felicia has emerged as one of Austin, Texas, and the world's preeminent drag superstars. She recently also appeared in a music video from hit artist Orville Peck, who she's also opened for in the past, and most currently has been using the digital platform to continue entertaining fans during this time of quarantine. A veritable icon, consummate performer, and drag legend, please welcome to the show, Louisiana Purchase. Hello, Michael. I'm very happy to be here. Louisiana, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, I know that we had talked about having you come on the show like a year ago, and so finally it's happening. Too bad it's under this kind of weird global duress right through the through the phone lines through the cans and wires will make yes. this happen <laughs> well i'm glad i'm glad i ate that much soup to reach texas that, exactly uh, exactly no uh, yeah i'm very i'm very excited to do this well then why don't we just uh leap right on in um i'll start the show with the same question i ask every guest which is simply this why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is because evil is fun. <laughs> like that, honestly, that's the first thing that just pops into my mind because, yeah, evil 
is fun. Like, you know, blasphemy is fun. Being bad can be fun. Uh, that's what got me into horror was, you know, as a kid, just completely obsessed with Bela Lugosi as Dracula. And I was like, he's got a cape. Look at all the accoutrement. You know, <laughs> he gets to live in this cool castle. Uh, you know, and everyone else was just kind of boring. Uh, yeah, it's just it, the razzle-dazzle. You know, I, I know for me and my drag, evil is way more fun. Do you think it's important psychologically that we tap into our, our sense of evil every so often? Because of that, there's a release to it, right? Oh, absolutely. No, I I definitely agree that that's something healthy to do, to play in the darkness. It gives balance to the light. Uh, you know, it's just, it's like in nature, everything has a balance. And it's fun to tiptoe into those darker waters. Uh, you know, it, it, it's all part of our, you know, human makeup. So, you know, to, to dip your toe into it, uh, you know, is a healthy thing. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, obviously, I think that something a lot of different artists and creators over the course of visiting this this show and this this discussion have, have brought up is there's catharsis in dipping into the darkness. We look at the fear and we look at the horror and we look at the evil and there there's a release there. I think also, too, because we know we're playing with it and there's it's a fictional version of what those things actually are. So it, it kind of sets us free in a way. Exactly. It gives us permission because we're playing with the, the aesthetic, uh, y- you know, the, the either the, you know, the, the visuals uh, that people associate with horror or what have you. Uh, you know, we're playing with the trappings of it. So there, there's a safety in that, that we can delve into that world and we're not like, you know, actually causing harm to anyone or actually doing real evil. Right. Now, you said something that I think is particularly interesting because uh, a lot of different guests, our own, uh, our own associates and colleagues and, and uh, leaders, the Boulay brothers themselves said this when they were on the show, is that early on they were drawn to uh, villains. Uh, and, you know, you were talking about Dracula because of the accoutrement and they, they grew up uh, kind of obsessing with Disney, being obsessed with Disney villains and like Masters of the Universe villains. Um, and... I'm interested, do you think there is something about the queer identity that pulls us towards those characters? Is it because they're often more fabulous? Yeah, they're more fabulous and they're the misfits. I mean, you know, that's that's what I was drawn to. Uh, my first taste of uh, anything horror related as a kid was when I would come home from school, the reruns would be American Bandstand, Dark Shadows, and then The Muppet Show. <laughs> so I, I, a great trio but yeah watching dark shadows really really informed just even to this day things that you know i love aesthetic wise and uh atmospherically but yeah i was just drawn to it they were more fabulous and you know they they were the outcasts and i definitely felt like the outcasts like the majority of you know queer people do and it's interesting because as I've thought about this, I've brought up a lot, you know, queer queer characters uh, and well, queer people are drawn towards villains. Uh, I use the Disney villains as an example. And I, I used to think it was because of the misfit ca- uh, connection, as well as the fact that they tend to be more uh, flamboyant, for lack of a better term, and more outre. 
But someone else also once told me, well, it also could be the fact that most Disney villains were in their way queer coded. They, they kind of made them ostensibly queer. So we were drawn to it because we recognized that. And it wasn't necessarily that they were villains. It's just that those were the only uh, queer coded characters we were getting because the establishment was saying that they were the bad guys. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we, we were kind of like pointed into that direction you know, already to be kind of drawn to those characters. That's a very interesting take on it as well. I, I enjoy that. Yeah, I can definitely see that as well. You know, we already kind of have the the disposition to be drawn to those characters and then by them feeding that in. Yeah, you know, I mean, we had no choice. We had no choice but to become the lover of villains. Right, and little did they know, I think they probably thought they were giving uh, social commentary, but we took back the night and we're like, well, if we're going to be witches, we're going to be the best damn witches ever. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. if, if you're going to be bad, be the baddest. <laughs> so I love that you bring up Dark Shadows. Uh, uh, let's talk about your origins. Um, were you all, you were always drawn to this kind of material and uh, were you always inclined towards creative arts did you was this something that you always wanted to go towards i know you came to drag later so i'm kind of curious about your trajectory yeah yeah um definitely always been a part of my aesthetic yeah i grew up watching dark shadows i loved the classic universal horror films i'm lucky enough to have been alive whenever they would still play elvira's movie macabre on late night reruns so all of that was uh constantly kind of fed into me I was an only child for eight years I was a tv kid you know glued to the set so those characters definitely uh just informed my imagination I love them all of my childhood photos I have the plastic Halloween vampire teeth in my mom would be (laughs) like you would be sleeping in them in July like she said they were disgusting but yeah I just always loved vampires and I think it was the transformative aspect of them turning into bats or into wolves or into any other creature and they could fly which is you know that's cool too you know they had the pointy teeth everything that definitely informed my childhood and then I went into visual arts in college and studied that as well as music and yeah drag later on in life was just a total fluke thing uh my friend group had slowly became primarily drag performers. And one Halloween rolled around and I was like, I want to do that. And they're like, have you ever done drag? I'm like, no, but I promise. I think it'd be cool. (laughs) You know, like ho-hum, like, you know, I just want to have fun like my friends. And so they let me in October 18th, 2013, their Halloween show. And I performed and got bit by the drag bug. And it kind of was stepping into this art form that took everything that I loved, visuals, music, and just rolled it into one just amazing thing. And so that's that kind of what led me to drag was through visual arts and music. Well, I think that in your case, you were, you were bit by the drag bat. Yeah, exactly, the drag bat. <laughs> I was like, I could be my own real-life vampire. Like, this is awesome. I, heard, I have it on good authority that your first drag show, you actually went to because you were going to meet somebody uh, for a date, a guy that you had talked to on an app. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I met someone on OkCupid. We agreed to meet at a drag show called Poo Poo Platter here in Austin, Texas. 
still going strong. I'm actually a member of that troupe now. But uh, yeah, I went there to see a drag show and meet a drag performer named Bulimian Rhapsody. And uh, we ended up going out on a date and we've been together ever since and we're married. Oh, well, well, first off, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm married to my drag mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I love about that, too, is what a night for a world of transformation. Here you've, you've never been to a drag show before. You not only walk into a room that becomes part of the world that informs the next chapter of your life creatively and professionally, but you also meet the person you're going to marry. That's got to be a very special evening to you. Yeah, very, very special evening. Like I met pretty much everyone that is in my closest circle of friends that one night. So yeah, like I discovering that it, it was the very first drag show I had ever been to as well. So discovering like live drag and then meeting this whole group of entertainers that, you know, become the closest people in my life. It, w- it was a very, uh, it was an amazing night. And then for them to give me the chance to, you know, perform on stage, having never performed on stage before, uh, you know, it was just a, a whole other uh, surprise gift wrapped up inside. But yeah, we, I met all those people around February and in October was my first performance. So I was slowly planning. Now, I know from, from Dragula that you, uh, your journey into your, your queer adult life was, was kind of fraught with, with some, 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 not, I don't want to say tragedy, but issues along the way. And, and it, it took a while for you to kind of find your, your queer community. Um, Prior to that night, what was what was your awareness of drag at any, if any, did, were you like, was that something that, you know, you you were aware of? Or was it just something that nebulously existed kind of outside of, of your frame of reference? Yeah, definitely. Like, I, I was aware, you know, I grew up, I watched wig stock. You know, I was definitely aware of drag and aware of like drag performers. And, and it was part of kind of like, I guess, like my world, like on the back burner, like on the periphery. I wasn't involved in the scene at all. Um, I grew up, mainly my friend groups were musicians. Uh, I played music a lot, saw a lot of punk shows, and that was my world. That was my queer world was was in music. And then when that kind of stopped and then I discovered drag, I was like, wow, you know, it's the same kind of energy. Uh, You know, this very kind of like raw DIY punk energy and you know just you know a little bit more fabulous right (laughs) no i mean i think this is something that uh is discussed every so often but um with the advent of 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 the era of drag race the conversation culturally about drag has changed quite a bit and what i think people forget is that drag for a long time and still is very very punk rock Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, You know, I always say that, you know, my drag is not necessarily meant, you know, it's not meant for kids. It's not meant for family. It's not meant for, you know, like John and Jane Doe, mainstream America. And I like that. And that's how I like my drag. Drag isn't uh, necessarily an art form, you know, made for, you know, it's there for everyone to enjoy. But, you know. I, I like my drag with some danger in it, 
a little arsenic in the in the drag teacup. Well, something that uh, Peaches Christ and I talk about all the time is sort of this this prevailing notion that has emerged uh, of late that ide- that drag has in some way become mainstream. And I I don't think that's true. I think that like maybe conceptually people think it is. But what's your take on that? Um, I think looking outside in, it can seem that way, especially when you're at an event like DragCon, for example. And, you know, it's a lot of white teenage girls <laughs> running around, snapping up T-shirts, buying merch, you know, and, and, and you know, living their fantasy. And that is who is out there buying the merch. That is who is out there buying the the meet and greet passes. So it can seem that way, but I know, you know, having the fortune of being able to perform all over the world, drag very much still is DIY and dirty and punk. And people are on stage, you know, doing things that, you know, you can't show on TV. And I love that. And to me, that is the the spirit of drag. It's, you know, punk theater, you know, because that's what drag is. It's live performance. Right. And when I, I think sort of the history of drag, people like the Coquettes, Divine, uh, even like Doris Fish and the Sluts of Go-Go, everything about what they did was punk rock. Uh, it's it's not just, you know, a convention center kind of gig. It's it's making sure to piss someone off to push the status quo. It, it, exactly. It's, you know... It, it's an art form that, you know, like you said, like not only pushes the status quo and pushes buttons, but, you know, it tells our queer stories. And that's something that, you know, I feel very protective of and feel that shouldn't be watered down and, and, and made palpable, palpable to the masses. Yeah, I, I just, you know, that, that's the kind of drag that really, you know, you mentioned Divine. And Divine is another huge one for me. And John Waters, his whole world of characters, you know. And, and, and for me, that is like, I don't know, that that still has such a pulse to it. You know, it has such a vibrancy still. And to me, that's just like, that's just what gets me off when it comes to drag. I like the, I like the, the aspect of danger. The aspect of danger. I like that. Well, we talk about that night that you first did drag October 18th, 2013. Is that what you said? Correct. Yes. Uh, let's, let's talk about that evolution from that very first night that you did drag to sort of where you are now, uh, because I'm sure it was a development and I'm sure it was a process. Uh, and the first question I have is, were you always Louisiana purchase or did that drag name come later? No, always Louisiana purchase. Uh, I, was born and raised in Louisiana, so the name really just fit. I even Google searched to see if there were any other Louisiana purchases, and no, it's it's just me. And, and the name was so kind of funny that it just, I, I never thought of anything else. But yeah, the trajectory, you know, I started out just kind of performing wherever anyone would have me for like, you know, $5 tip spot, $10 tip spot, you know, every weekend out there in drag. And at that time, it was a mixed CD. We would keep in our purse, <laughs> DJ, and be like, track number four, diva. And, you know, go out there and get your judge for the $3 in tips that somebody would throw at you, you know. But 
that's what I did until around March of 2014. I met the incredible performer, Christine. Love Christine. Yes. Hi, Christine. Christine and I are both from Southwest Louisiana, roughly around the same age. And Christine took took a shine to me and uh, invited me to co-host a South by Southwest showcase she was having literally six months after I started drag. And I remember dressing up like, like a demon goat and climbing on top of like go-go cages and hanging upside down and throwing plastic knives into the crowd and setting a Bible on fire. And <laughs> with a, I was an uncaged little demon uh, brat running around. I blacked out all of my teeth the whole first year of like doing drag. I just, I, I really, and, and I think it's true for a lot of drag artists that first year, first year and a half, I know for me, like, I was really an aggressive performer because I had a lot of aggression, a lot of shit to work through. And I think that first year in drag, you really kind of find what you want your voice to be, you know. And I started off really kind of demonic and terrorizing. And all I did was take all of that and through practice learn to wrap her up in a much prettier package. I'm really interested in what you said about working through the aggression because I, I've heard from a lot of different performers that drag uh, is freeing. The kind of the idea of putting on a mask allows you to become your truest self. And do you find that true? Were, were you able to expunge demons that you weren't yet ready to once you became Louisiana? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. And I think that is really what drew me into drag and kept me there was it was a form of of therapy because just the the fact it, for me it wasn't oh i get to be on stage and in front of people that actually took practice for me to be comfortable on stage for me it was like i can go out there and like the the four to you know three to four minutes five minutes that i'm up there they're mine and so like i can kind of just like very much do that like I can expel out the darkness and 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 have all these people experience it with me and so it becomes you know very much a healing journey of a process working through issues through drag and for me most definitely uh it, it, it's it was a cathartic thing and it's it still is it still very much is a, a cathartic thing you know any artist when they go through you know happiness sadness excitement you know, depression, what have you, you're going to put that into your art. And I, I still feel very much that direct connection to drag to where I can put those feelings into performances and into numbers. And one thing I really, really appreciate about your drag is you really draw on those things that inspire you. And but it's you do it your way. And, uh, you know, at the top of the show, we talked about your interest in classic horror and dark shadows. And I can tell very much that your drag is also uh, inspired a lot by by pinups and burlesque. But, you know, uh, on the vampire challenge of Dragula, your vampire was very much inspired by the work of Jean Roland. And I, I feel like not a lot of drag queens out there working even know who Jean Roland is. And here you are paying homage to him and, and, and getting your, your dark fantasy and, and keeping that legacy alive. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, that's another great thing about drag is, you know, no matter your reference, you have an audience for those references. And definitely, yeah, I'm a huge Jean Roland fan. 
uh, two of my absolute favorite movies are Fascination and Lips of Blood or Rec Room for a Vampire, whichever, you know, they changed the title. <laughs> I actually have that movie on in the background right now. But yeah, they just, they really captured my imagination. I definitely saw myself like, oh, this is something that I really feel can color my drag, like in a really interesting way. And the other thing I love about it is it, 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 it's ultra feminine. And like, you know, the, the female vampires are all like nudes and swathed and chiffon and, you know, long flowing hair. And again, it falls in line with that uh, darkness wrapped in beauty, which is probably the, the, you know, biggest inspiration for me is, you know, anything delving into that. And that's why I just like immediately was drawn to Jean Roland's work, you know. And then also every movie has like a 25 minute like sex scene. <laughs> it's just titties everywhere. They do. It's so funny because uh, a lot of times when we discuss the queer history of vampires, we have to delve into his because obviously those movies are very much the sort of epicenter of 70s Euro lesbian vampire everything. And it's so wild that this guy, uh, a straight man, as far as I know, made m most of the world's uh, preeminent lesbian vampire films. And I'm sure there would be people who would argue that obviously they're still being made for the male gaze, but vampires still have such an otherness and, and queerness to them that it's just sort of everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of queer uh, films that I know and, and are into horror do love the Jean Roland films. I just did a great show with uh, the Brooklyn drag troupe uh, Switch and Play. It's at National Sawdust uh, and it's called Vamp. And they do it every year and it's just a celebration of queer vampires in, in art. And, you know, there, there definitely is Jean Roland talk backstage. You know, the, he's definitely a huge inspiration for everyone who's, who's into that. Uh, you know, there's also other great films like Daughters of Darkness, which I actually watched last night. Another great film kind of in the, in the same vein. But yeah, even though, like you said, arguably it's made for the male gaze, there's still such a queerness about it that really kind of cuts through. Which also kind of leads me to a question. Uh, my producer, Drew, uh, and I talk about this sometimes, and she has said on numerous occasions that she thinks, uh, whether, whether the world agrees or not, all vampires are queer. What do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I grew up reading the, you know, all the amazing Anne Rice vampire novels. You know, I born and raised in Louisiana. I knew the area she was talking about. You know, uh, it definitely painted a picture. And all of those vampires were definitely very queer. And it's like, you know, vampires didn't, uh, there was no discrimination in who they bit. They just wanted blood, you know, uh, to, to quote, you know, to quote Aquaria, any goal, any hole is a goal. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I feel vampires feel the same way. Um, I was always very fond in the Anne Rice books of Armand because one, uh, well, I know in the novels he's more Botticelli and then in the movie he's more Antonio Banderas, but either way I feel like that's a win. But second, he's a theater, he's a theater queen. So either way, he's, he's like definitely my kind of ghoul, uh, I think. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, sometimes the, the, the painting is very obvious, sometimes a little more subdued, but, but yeah, I, 
there, there's such a just a rich history of queerness and just in, in vampirism, you know, and, you know, all forms of art. And I, to me, it's kind of funny. It, it's very glaring a lot of times, you know, it, it is discussed and talked about, but I'm surprised it's not a little bit more. But but yeah, no, ever since I was a kid, vampires are like the jam. <laughs> So here you are, you're taking your inspirations and, and putting them into your show to, f- to live your fantasy and, and do it in front of an audience. And uh, at, at the point that we had kind of left off in your timeline, you were, were really going to any show and doing any show that you could. And, and talk to me about Die Felicia, because that's your creation. When did that happen? Yeah, Die Felicia, we hit our fourth anniversary in February. It basically was born of a desire for me wanting to be Vampyra. Uh, quite honestly, like that ultimate, like, macabre hostess. You know, and, and, and I can't talk about Die Felicia, obviously, without, you know, talking about Dracula as well. Dracula the club show was a huge inspiration. You know, and, and it's just all kind of kismet that now I'm part of the, the Dracula family. But yeah, Die Felicia was really born of a desire to do like more horror type drag outside of October, you know, all the kind of spookier Queens, like October's our month, you know, Oh yay, We finally are going to get booked. So this way it was a home for all the kind of misfit toys of the, you know, of Austin drag uh, that loved horror. And I kind of made like a little, you know, just a menagerie of performers and it started off really small in a, in a, dive bar and just grew and grew you know until we we won an award in the austin chronicle for one of the best shows in town we've got a great audience that religiously comes out every month to see and it turned it's turned it's evolved into this wonderful like kooky spooky like variety show with a uh, a game show go go boys drag uh, we take a classic scene from a horror film and recreate it live, and we call it Horror Piece Theater. You know, really <laughs> campy, really silly, really fun. And, uh, yeah, uh, through, you know, through getting to just, like, having the opportunity and the platform here in Austin to really, you know, work hard and put my nose to the grindstone, you know, I was able to take all of those horror influences and really just put all of that into Die Felicia. Uh, you said with Horror Piece Theater, you do recreations of, of horror scenes with drag performers. Is there a uh, is there a horror scene that you've always wanted to do that you haven't been able to? And follow-up question, if you could remake a classic horror film using only drag performers, what would it be? Oh my God. Uh, let's see. If I could recreate any classic horror scene... I mean, if we had the if we had the know how and the skill, let's we might as well let's let's do the the ending uh, of the witch. <laughs> I, I I would I would do that's one of my absolute favorites. Uh, I call that uh, it's a feel good movie. Uh, the ending is just completely awesome to me. I'm like, yeah, that was that was a win win for everyone. Let's see what else. Uh, what was the other question? If you could remake any classic horror film as a film with with drag performers, what film would you do? Oh my god! I, let's do Rosemary's Baby. Ooh, I think that would be great. I would love that. They're they're so campy anyway. All the characters in the in the film, I find they're they're kind of exaggerated personalities. That it would be great for a drag film. 
Well, you know who I think deserves much more love from the queer community is Ruth Gordon. I mean, I, she has her fans, but she is just so, uh, so amazing in Rosemary's Baby. And I think there's such a camp to that character. Like you said, everybody, but who doesn't want her knocking on the door? I mean, you're not going to get any arguments from me. No, I wholeheartedly agree. Like, to me, is she's such a heartbeat in that film. Like, she she definitely helps make it. She really is. She really is. I think that she knew exactly what she needed to be and needed to do. I'm always a fan of a, an actor who really gets the material and knows exactly what kind of movie they're in. I think also of Gina Gershon in Showgirls. Regardless of the world's, like, back and forth dialogue on this and who was in on the joke and who was, who was not, you can see Gina Gershon be like, okay, I got this. And she's fabulous. Yeah, like she looks at the script for like five seconds and throws it to the assistant. And she's like, I'm fine. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you know, when you mentioned The Witch, I kind of didn't think about it until this moment. But it, it really, in a lot of ways, is a great queer allegory. Because that girl all throughout the movie is being kind of held back by the cultural and societal trappings of her family. And only in that final moment when she goes out into the woods and spoiler alert, finds the coven of witches, is she able to kind of like shed off the, the trappings, both, both literally and figuratively of her old life and be who she, she yearns to be. And that's, I don't know. Louisiana, you just tapped into something. Like, like literally, I when I, I saw the film in theaters and, you know, uh, I sobbed at the end. Like, it was, to me, such, like, a, um, like a glorious, like, like re- redemption. Just, like, I love in a film if, you know, when the underdog gets vengeance. You know, we talked a lot, you know, I talked about early drag, like emotions and vengeance definitely was one. And that's a, that's an emotion queer people can definitely tap into, you know, like wanting revenge on something. And, and to me, you, you know, the, the character at the end, you know, triumphantly soaring into the air. It's like, oh God, what a great fuck you. Like, I mean, <laughs> amazing. Well, talking about joining your coven, you had mentioned that uh, obviously you couldn't talk about Die Felicia without discussing Dragula as it had existed at one time as a club night. You, as, as the world knows, were a cast member of the most recent third season of the show. And that's actually where you and I met. Yes, yes, on, on set for Dragula. I instantly recognized you, but I just kept my mouth shut. <laughs> and, and went about my day i was like you know there there, there were a few uh fangirling moments that you know i i thankfully in my older years i was like just just stay calm diva <laughs> but yeah dragula uh a total like that made my my year last year i didn't foresee it happening and it kind of all fell into my lap and i was just so grateful and ran with it well, let's so let's talk about it. Like from from the time you auditioned to getting that call uh, and and coming to the show, you must have known that there's sort of a before Dragula and an after Dragula once you do something like that. Oh, a- absolutely. You know, whenever I was announced to the world as being part of uh, the season three cast after Meet Our Monsters was released, you know, I had friends coming up to me and they're like, "Oh, are you ready? Your life's different." Like today is the day your life is going to change. And I was like, oh, you know, pish posh, 
you know, whatever. And no, it, it is something that instantly changes your life. And for me, um, at least, you know, where, it, where everything goes after that is, is left up to me. I walked away from Jaguila with such a positive experience and fell in love with all of my castmates and, uh, you know, received a lot of uh, positive feedback from the show. So, yeah, I just took all of that and, and ran with it uh, during the show's airing and after. And, uh, you know, what a fun ride. Well, it's it's certainly like being in the trenches, I think, in, in a good way. Uh, you know, uh, my perspective on the show is obviously uh, different than yours because you were on it as a competitor. I was there as a writer, director, as well as someone who kind of helped uh, the Boulets uh, with, with the course of the discussion and the show. But I remember at the um, premiere party, M- Madeline and I had a conversation where we talked about how just being through that experience bonds us all in, in in a way because even what you see on TV, you'll never fully understand the full breadth of what, what it was like to be there. Absolutely. Um, it, it very much is not, you know, as detrimental, but, you know, it's very much similar to PTSD. You know, we go through this experience, the 11 of us, just, you know, as a cast, just the 11 of us. So, yeah, we're, we're going yeah. to, be, you know, we're going to be instantly bonded and, we that happened to us obviously but then you know through the course of filming we discover you know hey like i really really enjoy all you know 10 of you and for me it was definitely that way and and so yeah like we we grew very close you know it it, it was like a, a a support system there uh, amongst the cast and i adore everyone's drag that was on the show and for me it really pushed me to up my drag game. I felt like I grew by leaps and bounds while filming. And and for me, as far as my drag goes, as far as like quality and what I'm putting out, there definitely is a pre-dragula and a post-dragula. Now, I mean, and the funny thing is, is you and I really haven't fully talked about the show since the show. So it's, it, and now just in true entertainment industry fashion, we're doing it live on the air. Uh, I, I will say, and I always tell people, the artistry on display from every single person there was inspiring and amazing. And I always feel like if it looked cool on TV, it was jaw-dropping when you all would walk out and be like to be standing five feet away from some of the things that you created. And in the time that you had to do it, it was, it was amazing. Yeah, especially uh, the Trash Queen episode. You know, I that whole look, I made it the night before and uh had to have priscilla cut me out of it because it was all tape and saran wrap and get on set and she wrapped me in it again and uh i really felt i was like okay the, it, it felt like drag boot camp the drag olympics i enjoyed being pushed like that because definitely nothing prior to that uh pushed me that intensely but you know as a type a capricorn michael i i (laughs) i enjoyed it immensely well here's here's something that you can now answer of the safety on the other side of the season uh and i i as as one of your judges and directors uh can't use it against you what of the extermination i know that you struggled with the the stapling extermination that you had to do yeah but what of the extermination challenges that you didn't have to do do you think would not have been 
your your thing like you would have been too too much oh absolutely the first one that i was in bottom three for jumping out of a plane <laughs> let, let me tell you i was clenched so hard i think my rectum was in my throat i definitely had sweaty palms and then when they said i was safe i don't think i could have gotten off the stage quicker but yeah, that definitely be, would have been a heart palpitating uh, challenge for me. But, you know, like, like I said, I, while filming the show on one of the episodes, uh, I really went into filming, not just for myself, but I really felt the, the need to kind of showcase Austin and the type of drag that we do here and really make everyone proud. So th there was no way I would have said no to anything. Well, I uh, I remember when um, the production team and I, uh, when I would meet with the production team and we would talk, before the season, before you all even arrived, we would talk about the different exterminations and what to do. And I remember uh, the conversation frequently would come up at the table, would you do this? And my answer was always like, no, like, I, of course not. Like, I would never, but I'm not also agreeing to go do it. So. Exactly. But that, that's, that's a good litmus test to uh, whether it be a good extermination. If you would do it, the answer would be no. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was a really uh, amazing thing. And it was cool to uh, see you all go through that journey. And I have, uh, audience, I, I have Louisiana's pumpkin from the Halloween challenge. She gifted it to me after that episode, and it's it's lives here at my house. And so I see it every day, and I think of the season, and I think of you, and uh, what a great and magical experience that was. Oh, awesome. Yeah, no, I, I remember that uh, we finished filming the uh, classic Halloween challenge, and we had all made pumpkins, and I was like, what am I going to do with this? And I was like, and I saw your face and I was like, I'm going to see if Michael would like it. And literally just <laughs> was like, Michael, would you like this pumpkin? Yeah. And I very, and I was very hap uh, happy to see that you wanted it. So, uh, so yeah, that was, I, I kind of magpied little gifts to people while filming. And so that was, that was fun that I got to give away the pumpkin to you. Well, and the pumpkin ended up in a horror film that I ended up writing and directing later in that year uh, that's set at Halloween. I put it in as one of the Halloween decorations uh, as uh, just sort of an Easter egg for Dragula fans who might watch. So it's actually been in a few different shows now. <laughs> I love it. The satanic pumpkin lives on. Tr tr truly, truly. Um, so talk, talk to me about life after. You said that your drag has stepped up, but you've been traveling. What's what's that been like going out into the world after the show has uh, ended? Yeah, after the show, I've been pretty much on the road nonstop doing club dates uh, back and forth. I went on a tour uh, with some of my Dragula castmates and the Boulay Brothers to Europe, which was really exciting. First time performing in Europe and the majority of the places we went to in the UK. I went on a tour with the touring production company Hard Candy, and that was so much fun. Uh, got to shoot a music video with Orville Peck, which was very exciting. We shot a music video for his song Queen of the Rodeo. So a lot of exciting things have been happening. Kind of, I, I'm, I was a workhorse prior to Dragula, and uh, I'm very fortunate to be working uh, more than I ever have prior to Corona, the Corona time. But yeah, now uh, what I've done is just moved everything into the digital realm working on photo shoots, filming performances. I like to keep on a trajectory of, of staying busy. I have a lot of ideas and just want to get them all out. I have an album coming out in October. Of, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a theremin album. I play theremin. Ooh. 
Yeah, so it's going to come out around Halloween. We're preparing the first single and a video for it. So that's going to be an exciting thing to work on. But yeah, I just, I'm just the old broad that likes to stay busy. <laughs> now, uh, Orville Peck, that video is gorgeous and you look gorgeous in it. Did you meet because you had opened some shows for him? He's a, is he a Dragula fan? Is that how you initially connected? Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, uh, how I connected with Orville was uh, someone sent him a video of me performing Dead of Night, a burlesque performance. And uh, he saw it and commented on it. And I kind of uh, went in his DMs and was like, I love that song, Dead of Night. Thank you so much for making a great album. I love performing to the song. And it very organically built up into this thing where I got uh, approached to open for him here in Austin. And uh, I've opened for bands before, and it's usually like a nine or 10 minute slot. I get to do a couple of drag numbers, and then the first opening band comes out. But in this instance, Orville gave me a full 30 minute set prior to his set. So we got to hang out, and uh, it was a, a lot of fun working with him. And about a week before the video shoot for Queen of the Rodeo, he just shot me a text. He's like, hey, I would love for you to be in my video. Are you down? And I was like, absolutely. So I drove out to Fort Worth, Texas. We filmed uh, all day and night. Yeah, it turned out really great. Super fun experience. Are you a rodeo gal in real life? Do you, do you go? Have you gone? I'm, I'm, a, I'm from the country, honey, and I grew up on a farm. So I grew up around horses and cattle. And when I was in sixth grade, I knew how to like blanket and saddle a horse and go out for a ride. So yeah, it was it was very, very much uh, at home for me. <laughs> well, again, it's it's such a cool video. It was so, so cool to see you in it. And uh, what what an awesome opportunity. Yeah, I, um, I was really gagged that he asked in the first place. You know, they gave me no direction as far as look or anything. They were just like, you're going to be a bartender. And I was like, okay. You know, so that was fun, you know thinking of the look and putting it all together. One thing people didn't get to see was on the back of the jacket was a foot tall, fully rhinestoned uh, devil face on the back. <laughs> so I, I brought, I brought, you know, I brought a, a little Satan to the, to the video shoot. Oh, I was gonna say something tells me he's cool with it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no. Orville saw the jacket and loved it actually. But yeah, no, uh, music videos and opening for bands is something that I've done before prior to Dragula, and I really do hope I get to continue. My dream would be to open for Lana Del Rey, and I'm trying to verbally manifest that uh, as often as possible. So thank you for that opportunity <laughs> to do that. Well, Lana, I know you're listening. I'm sure she is. Yeah, let's, let's get Louisiana on the road with you, uh, because honestly, what's better, what's better than one spooky lady? Two two <laughs> right if not one then two exactly <laughs> <laughs> now you spoke a little bit about this new modern era of drag that's so modern it really didn't even exist until last week this idea of of quarantine drag and the digital landscape and and kind of making that happen now i i know that you said part of that is you you are a workhorse and you're you're just looking for new ways to push forward but talk to me a little bit about this landscape is this is this What's it like performing from your house? Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, we've been thrown into, you know, this new landscape and we're just kind of like, you know, trying to learn how to, you know, steer a boat all of a sudden. 
but yeah, you know, prior to, you know, all this digital drag happening, you know, all of us performers had similar stories of like getting one phone call and within 15 minutes, like two months of gigs, like literally slipping through our hands. So, you know, if there's one thing a drag performer should be, and that's adaptable. So we're like, okay, what avenues do we still have available to us? And it's, you know, laptops and phones, you know, social media. The first thing that came to my mind immediately was, oh my God, now's the time to start recording performances and doing photo shoots, you know, not only to keep ourselves busy, but, you know, to provide content and also just entertainment for everyone. Everyone's going to be home and with a phone in their face or their laptop on their lap. So it's like, hey, drag performers do, (laughs) you know, and it it very much kind of felt like a a little bit of a panicked sink or swim feeling at the beginning. But now that we see that people will, you know, participate and watch these digital drag shows, now it's kind of, you know, for as, as, you know, dour of a situation it is, you know, drag performers are really trying to make the best of it. And it is an untapped kind of, you know, landscape we're looking at. And it is exciting. So uh, I, I know for me, working in, in, in this kind of format is different, but something I'm very excited to, um, you know, to, to work with, to, to work on and provide some, some fun content for everyone. There definitely will be some lesbian vampirism, I promise. I sure hope so. What I like is how full circle this all has has come, though, because at the beginning of the conversation, we discussed how drag pushes the envelope, but also uh, is is punk rock and 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 how, you know, you use that art to lead the charge and, and, and blaze new new trails. And what's really happening here is this is punk rock. It's like we're stuck at home. Well, fuck that. We're still going to perform. And that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the most exciting things about it is the the very much DIY nature of it. It's like we've, we're finding ourselves like making backdrops and figuring out like, you know, lighting and, and, and figuring out, you know, a friend of mine who lives next door to me had a, a projector. So I'm like, oh, wow, can I like borrow that? And now, you know, that adds like a whole new element to everything. It's just these kind of... It, it, it's it's just this excitement kind of building, I think, with with the, the 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 landscape. And you know, again, you know, with drag and it, it being DIY and punk, you know, any anything that's possible is just left up to people's imaginations. And I think that's what we're going to have to tap into to just keep this going. Well, I'm glad that you are, and I'm glad that you do. Uh, before we head off, I do want to ask you because you and I have. Uh, messaged about this a few times uh and it, it kind of makes sense based on your love of vampires but i happen to know that you love hammer horror films oh my god i do i love hammer horror films the satanic rites of dracula oh my god so good is my number one i own it on dvd i watch it quite often and i actually bought a new dvd copy when we were in uh in Europe. I also bought uh, The House That Dripped Blood as another one of my favorites. So yeah, no, I love Hammer Horror films. That that whole era of British horror is kind of unparalleled to me. And yeah, some of it can be, 
it's not as good as you know some of the films are not as good as others but to me that just like that just makes it even better I think it's interesting because I think of the seven or eight Dracula films that Hammer did, Satanic Rites is the last one. And it's, it is vastly different from most of the others because most of the other uh, Hammer, Christopher Lee, Dracula movies are all set during a gothic era Europe where, you know, there's, there's always some sort of castle Dracula vamping around uh, villagers and whatnot. But Satanic Rites is set very firmly in, in uh, air quotes, modern day London, so the 70s. And because of your, your gothic leanings, what was it about Satanic Rites that really grabbed you? I, I don't know what it is. And it's very similar with, you know, a, a lot of films that I, I consider my favorites. It's, I think it was just the combination of everything, the, the modern setting, all the female vampires in the red robes. Like I actually had one of my first looks I ever had designer create for me was like a very similar like red chiffon robe like they wore in the film. Just everything, the, the aesthetic of it. I remember the first time trying to watch it though, a funny story, I, you know, the pacing's a little slower in some areas and I definitely fell asleep the first time. <laughs> but um, but I, I watched it again and, and, and was rewarded. <laughs> The first time I ever saw that movie, I was taking a monster movies class at college, because that's a thing that colleges should be offering. Uh, and our professor was, I don't know, he just was checked out that day. And he's like, we're going to watch a Dracula movie. And that happened to be the one he had. And I was in. Like, you know, from those like shag vests that Dracula's like motorcycle henchmen wear. Yes. Uh, to the fact that Joanna Lumley uh, from Absolutely Fabulous plays Van Helsing's granddaughter. It's just so bizarre. It, it is. It's, it's bizarre and so good. And anyone listening, if you haven't seen it, please do yourself a favor and watch it. You, I, I don't think they'll, they'll regret it. <laughs> no. And if you want to make it a double feature night, if you're stuck at home, and I know you are, I would, I would suggest also watching uh, the film that immediately precedes it, Dracula 80, 1972, because it's also set in the 70s, and uh, it somehow involves Dracula involved with a disco death cult. I didn't make that up. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that would make a great double feature, and I'll, I'll actually have to do that myself. So. <laughs> a must watch. And I think both films were recently uh, remastered for Blu-ray by Warner Archive. Uh, they did not pay me to say that, so that's just me giving you a quarantine recommendation. I actually have the 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 Blu-ray of uh, the Satanic Rites of Dracula, so I I can I can vouch for how good it is. Well, I mean, after all of this, usually towards the end of the show, I ask people what they've been watching lately. I mean, we did just offer a big double feature, but have you seen anything lately, or heard anything lately, or read anything lately that's really inspiring you in your art, or just helping you pass the time? I actually finally watched Terrifier. Oh, the clown movie. Yes, on Netflix. And I'm, I'll be on. it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> it really, really did. And, you know, I find a lot of horror does not. Uh, and so that's my recommendation. If you're one of the five people in, in the world like me who haven't seen it, do see that. Because you will be scared. <laughs> Is it because of the clowns or just the movie itself? I think everything about it, the pacing, the atmosphere, the clown makeup, the clown look is super creepy. I just think everything about it. They, there's some good, gruesome kills in it. So, yeah. 
Because I have to say there is something sort of appealing to me about the idea of a drag queen who's afraid of a clown. I, I just think that there's something amazing. I will fully admit, like, when, when Eva was in her full clown look, I was like, I'm a little off-put, and I am a clown myself. So there you go. Well, one one final thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, over this, we talked about you, uh, your origins, what inspired you and your legacy, and and how you came to be Louisiana. And I happen to know that you now are the drag mother of many drag children yourself. I am. I have 30 kids. Uh, not all of them are alive. Um, some, some have tombstones that I go put flowers on occasionally. But yeah, my, uh, I guess, most newest notable daughter is uh, Priscilla Chambers from season three of Dragula. And that's got to be very, uh, very fulfilling to you because I know community is so important to you to know that you have put yourself in a place where people come to you and look to you to help kind of foster this sense of community that you yourself at one time were looking for. Yeah, no, exactly. Whenever I started drag, you know, uh, the landscape of Austin drag wasn't necessarily the friendliest towards, uh, you know, um, non non pageant non you know kind of mainstream uh performing drag queens and so now to have such a a large drag family and, and a large drag community here in austin is very fulfilling uh it very much is an island of misfit toys and i love that well thank you for doing what you do louisiana and thank you for taking the time to come to the show today uh where can people find you um, my best and probably busiest form of social media is Instagram, and they can find me uh, at it's at Louisiana Purchase, and it's two ends in Louisiana, and there I will be. There you will be. Thank you so much for you know being one of the greatest queens of the night that I know. I look forward to all you're doing, listeners. Please keep your eyes open for Louisiana on her digital drag shows and hopefully on, on, on the road soon, as well as her album coming out in October and all the other places she's popping up. Uh, thank you for being you, and I hope to see you very soon. I hope to see you as well, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night, good luck, and stay at home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.